This is Gil Manser welcoming you to KRCBFM's Word by Word Conversations with Writers show from North Bay Public Media. Today we are showcasing the newest book from The Sitting Room. Entitled This is What a Feminist Looks Like, it is a series of short first person essays and might be better named This is What a Feminist Writes Like. This afternoon we will share ideas and reminiscences with several of the writers themselves. With degrees from Stanford and San Francisco State, which are my alma maters as well, Terry Errett's poetry, essays, stories, and reviews have appeared in numerous magazines and anthologies, and her poems have won several literary awards, including the National Poetry Series, California Commonwealth Club Book Award, Nimrod Hardman Pablo Neruda Poetry Prize, which you'll have to tell us about, and four Pushcart Prize nominations. Terry is also Sonoma County's former poet laureate. She begins her essay with the words, I was a tree climber for my earliest years. Julie Lee wrote about the sitting room and their feminist anthology for the Press Democrat, co-editor-in-chief of the Oak Leaf, the SRJC student-run newspaper. She brings a reporter's skills with her this afternoon. Former chair of communication studies at SSU, Jonah Raskin has degrees from Columbia College and the University of Manchester. Jonah is a longtime friend of Word by Word and is the author of 14 books, including Marijuana Land, Dispatches from an American War, and Field Days, A Year of Farming, Eating, and Drinking Wine in California. Labeled the Irreverent Raconteur of America's Countercultures, his entry in the anthology is entitled Feminism Made a Man Out of Me. Emeritus English professor J.J. Wilson came to Sonoma State University in 1968 where she became one of the founders of the Women's Studies Curriculum. She is also known as one of the two mothers, along with SRJC librarian Karen Peterson, of The Sitting Room. The enigmatic title of her piece in the anthology is Which of the Many? Terry, Julie, Jonah, and JJ, I'd like to welcome you to Word by Word. Thanks, Gil. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you, Gil. I think it only right and proper that JJ Wilson share with our listeners what exactly the sitting room has grown to be? Good question. We've been in business, if that's what it can be called, if a library's ever a business, which I don't think is true, for over 30 years now. It's creeping up on 40. I don't dare count anymore. And we've moved recently to new premises, which are more spacious, which is a good thing. Room for more books and for more readers and for more workshops, such as Terry Errett gives at the sitting room this year. It's going to be on silence or something very That's difficult right. to mm. market, mm. <laughs> I should think, in this noisy age we live in. But one of the things that the sitting room has done for the past dozen or so years is put out a small book, a booklet, really, of the writings that are sent into us in answer to a certain prompt. And last year, it was really popular. It was, uh, what did we read as children? Mm -hmm. What we read as children that we thought, you know, changed our lives, that made us live a different way or read a different way. And that was a very popular topic, as I said. Everyone wanted to write to it. It was non-controversial, I suppose you'd say. And uh, this year, when the topic was brought up, There were several topics being discussed. When the topic was brought up, well, what about the first time you realized you were a feminist? 
we ought to write that down. My heart a little bit sank because I thought some people are just turned off by any labels or any ideology or any word like feminism. And I also was afraid, I'm ashamed to admit this now, especially on the air, uh, that I thought they might be uh, angry and replicate one another closely mm. and that I as the, I got to be the editor this year. So I would read all these. Little did I know that it was going to be like Christmas every day when they, they came rolling in via email. I don't want to talk too long about it but because there's so many. It's better to hear some of the pieces. Sure. But what I found was that, you know, people, many of the people who write for the sitting room are people I know. I thought I knew. But guess what? I had never asked them how they became feminists or had they become feminists or would they like to become feminists someday or any of those questions, leading questions. And I realized that I was really getting to know people much better because of this conversation. Uh, and it was even more telling than what they read when they were children. And so that's why it was so much fun for me to put the book together and then and it's fun for me to listen to what they're going to say about their experience of writing the pieces that they wrote and Julie's experience of trying to find a way to talk about a book that has 47 entries mm -hmm. uh, in one small column for the Press Democrat. So I'm Okay. Gonna, well, I'm delighted <laughs> to note that the panel or the group of people here today have, are representing different generations because I want to ask several questions about the word feminism, which is sometimes spelled with a capital F. Mm -hmm. And as the head of the communications department, you've seen that word change over the past decades, Jonah. Um, there are re reference to the post-feminist era and the first and second and third wave of feminism and all kinds of doctoral dissertations and uh, freshman guidance papers written about the subject. What, uh, what's happened to it? What's happened to that particular phrase? Well, it's gone on. It, it's uh, it's gotten redefined and recycled, and um, I would say that I uh, came of age uh, hearing about feminism, um, but then it feminism didn't really catch fire for me or touch my own life until it got referred to as women's liberation, mm -hmm. which was in the late sixties and the early nineteen seventies. So I, I know I saw it as a another uh, iteration of, of feminism, that it, women's liberation. Um, so uh, and it's it still connects with 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 people today. It's as uh, I think it's as as needed as as it ever was, and. Uh, because we've got, uh, I mean, we've got profound inequalities in our society between men and women, just as just as there are racial inequalities. Mm -hmm. So, um, and the media uh, is still, unfortunately, uh, spewing out these many of the same old cliches and stereotypes about women and, and feminists, bra burning, and all that. Yeah. Yeah. Which never really, as far as I know, never took place. Just well, as... it did, but it was a publicity stunt. Yeah, yeah. Well, not at not at Atlantic City when no. people said it, no. it was. Yeah. Terry, when were you in school? Uh, it's... Um, depends on which 
kind well, of school year? No, sta- uh, gra- uh, undergraduate graduate. Undergraduate. Um, I started in 1973, finished in 1977. Okay, so you were at what I would call probably one of the loudest times of the feminist movement. It wasn't loud at Stanford. Ah. It was very quiet. Um, in fact, protests in general had really quieted down by that time. We had to work hard to stir up uh, interest and energy. Um, my the the feminism that um, I became sort of really conscious of and radicalized by was in the very early eighties mm. when I was in graduate school in creative writing at San Francisco State. And uh, the first class I took was called Feminist Aesthetics. And the first thing we were challenged to do was to define feminism. So that's when I really um, understood the profound implications of feminism and the patriarchy, including how that influences what we write, subject matter, and uh, style as well, uh, and even the forms we choose to write in. Um, so that's that's when I became more conscious of it. But it, actually at Stanford, I had in all my time that I was there, uh, three women professors. Mm-hmm. And they were um, three very important women, um, one who was doing uh, research in gender studies in anthropology, um, another who was uh, working in the classics, and the only woman um, that Stanford had in the classics department, uh, but bringing that, her understanding of uh, uh, women's issues to the study of the classics. And the other was Diane Middlebrook, whom, who was definitely in the radical feminist uh, world of academia, which has its edges a, a bit softened, I think, sometimes by dialogue, which mm-hmm. is good. Mm-hmm. Julie, you're in school now, mm-hmm. so tell me when you're on the campus. Is the has is there a feminist movement, a women's liberation movement, a um, women's studies program? How do you identify it today? Um, on campus, I believe that there is no student club dedicated to women's rights or feminism. Um, I do believe we do have a women's studies major, mm-hmm. but. When you look at all the um, pre uh, necessary courses, mm-hmm. it's all derived from other departments. There is no women's study department. Um, you borrow from history, and I think there's one or two classes dedicated to women's history in the U.S., and that's limited to the U.S. And I think something like counseling um, about s- sex and gender, I think, distinguishing those. Mm -hmm. Um, So Mm -hmm. I don't see or experience any sort of activism on campus, but um, as a, I'm 20 years old and Mm -hmm. I spend a lot of time online and that's (laughs) how I learned about feminism uh, conceptually. I um, also wrote an essay much long before um, I knew about the sitting room, but in my piece, I wanted to demonstrate that um, you learn about patriarchal influence not from an academic point of view, but from personal experiences first. And I only realized the like even learned the word feminism um, after taking a sociology class or um, learning about 
uh, feminist critical theory through my literature classes. Um, so I just wanted to um, note that and back to the um, online thing, it's just, it's become a really great resource to both gain information and uh, distribute it. Mm -hmm. It's a great forum. As I was reading through several of the, the pieces in the uh, anthology, I noticed that they fell into several categories, but you have carefully put them in alphabetical order by the last name of the author, which must have been an easier way to edit. Amen. Amen. We're for easy at the sitting room. I don't know if I mentioned that before. <laughs> because I, see, I saw certain clusters of people. Uh, there were several men, uh, Jonah being one of them. Um, who were there and identified themselves strongly with the, many of the tenets of feminism and maybe had not labeled themselves as such for a period of time or come and go or, as you you know said, didn't react to the word. You called uh, called it women's studies that, that women's got you. Liberation. Women's liberation. that got you involved. Um, the other thing is that I noticed that there were many stories, like Julie was talking about, where the writer was talking about something that occurred to them, usually at a very young age, and I guess what you would call um, sex identification, you know, girls can't do this. And that's why I want to go immediately to your piece, Terry. Can, mm -hmm. can you share that with us? Um, you read it. Want me to read it? If you wouldn't mind, I think that would be fun. Well, the, the reason is, is because uh, you start out the way you do. Right. All right. Well, um, and because it's a very good piece. Well, that yeah, you, <laughs> of well, course. I, I, right. I just want to um, sort of dovetail on what you were you were saying to um, JJ about the sort of kinds of writings and one experience that does um, push one over a threshold. Uh, if you know, I realizing that there's some kind of injustice going on. JJ has a wonderful definition of of an aspect of feminism, which is just a real sensitivity, having sharp ears, I think you say, for biases, injustices, wherever they may occur. And we live with those for um, often without questioning. So what pushes you over the threshold to question it? And for many women, it's what one of the writers calls a slapdown experience, where something that would otherwise be acknowledged and um, praised, encouraged, is denied mm -hmm. um, or actively discouraged or even punished. And that's what this piece is about. Well, we can talk about that a little bit later, but the labels that are used for young women and young men are decidedly different for the same exact activities. Sure, yes. And this um, piece is called A Man's World, uh, which was, which is a phrase that will gather meaning as the piece goes along. I was a tree climber from my earliest years, at home in the arms of the gray-backed and bearded mother oaks that dotted the hills of my California town. When I started school, I transferred my tree climbing nimbleness to the playground, slides, rings, swings, jungle gyms. I could soar. I could twirl. I could thread myself through the air, propelled by luck and grace. This earned me my childhood nickname, Terry the Monkey, after the tailless howler at the San Francisco Zoo, also known to spit and toss feces at teasing spectators. One fine spring morning in fifth grade, 
the girls were told to stay in at recess while the boys went careening out to play. We could feel a scolding in the air, some transgression the yard-duty mothers had reported, no doubt. Our teacher sat at her desk, grim-faced, serious. When you girls go down the slide, she began, the boys can see your underwear, and when you climb up the ladder, the boys below you in line can see right up your skirts. We were stunned, silent, obedient, in our white blouses and red plaid skirts. What had we done wrong? But then came a pronouncement none of us had anticipated. From now on, only boys will be allowed on the slide. Give up the slide? Oh, this was a sacrifice. My friends and I had been perfecting the use of wax paper sandwich bags from our <laughs> lunches. If we sat on them while we slid down, the wax polished the metal and we'd fly. Sometimes so fast it was hard to land squarely on our feet at the bottom. Tiny Susie Smith went down after several, us, several of us had primed the surface and, unable to stop her momentum, went hurtling off the end, skidding on her tailbone in the tan bark. We all laughed, but the yard-duty mothers took note and reported us to the nuns, who revoked our slide privileges for a week. Susie stood by us, said we weren't to blame, all was forgiven, provided we promised not to use our sandwich bags again. But now the slide was being taken away altogether, and for no offense at all other than being girls. Oh, well, we thought after meeting at lunch to grumble, at least we have the swings and the rings. But that spring we were summoned twice more for a girls-only meeting and told how the boys were ogling our underpants when we twirled on the rings and pumped high on the swings. One classmate, a tomboy in long brown braids, suggested that the girls wear shorts under their skirts. Instead of seeing the logic of the proposal, she was chastised for questioning the judgment of her elders. Now what, we, what were we going to do at recess? Jacks? Hopscotch? Jump rope? It's not fair, we complain. But our teacher replied wryly, Get used to it, girls. It's a man's world. Then the hot anger rose in my chest. The boys looking up the girls' skirts and sniggering at underpants, were rewarded by getting all the playground equipment to themselves. Why hadn't the boys been asked to stay in and told the inappropriateness of their behavior? Why were the girls punished, relegated to fine motor competitions and sedentary skills simply for enjoying the innocent thrills their young bodies could give them? Why was it a man's world? Who says... I suppose in asking those questions, at age nine, my feminism was first awakened. Mm -hmm. So reactions to that piece from others. Can you share some? Um, what others have said about yes. the piece? Mm -hmm. um, I think for many people it just brought back similar memories um, because they may have experienced such a slap down, so so to call it, but um, it may not have been the one that pushed them over the threshold. Mm -hmm. uh, may not have been their particular 
awakening. Or maybe we just have many awakenings and we wake up to different aspects um, of feminism. And there are many aspects uh, to it. And I think that's one of the beauties of this collection is we get to see all the different threads that make it up. Many of them anyway. yeah. Yeah. As you read the piece and as you wrote it, I assume, you probably were thinking back of how you felt at the time as a young girl. I remember feeling so accomplished um, on the playground, right. and um, I, to have that denied, uh, that was that was the initial injustice I felt. It was only later, I think, that I began to question why the boys weren't told that their behavior was inappropriate, mm-hmm. that the girls were, or why a practical solution like, well, wear wear shorts under, you know, yeah. perfectly. A good solution. That's what culottes were invented for, right? Well, you know, but I went to Catholic school, uh, and um, one of did the did you tra- have shiny shoes, patent leather? Well, shoes? I had to polish them, so they were as shiny as uh, as my dedication to the because, weekly uh, polishing was. I remember the girls across the street who went to school, and they they had the patent leather Mary Janes, yeah, and were told not to stand a certain That's way right. because the boys could see, see your underpants to, to look at the reflection in the patent just, leather shoes. Right. Uh, no, we had we had saddle Oxford, so uh, that avoided that controversy. That's probably why they had them. But bifurcated clothing was forbidden to oh. girls um, at many Catholic schools. Bifurcated clothing. Bifurcated <laughs> clothing. <laughs> no, bifurcated just means split. Oh. Split in two. Oh. So pants, essentially, oh. or anything that is pant-like. Is this true? True. Absolutely. JJ shaking her head. Yeah. True. We were forbidden. We could not wear bifurcated clothing the whole time that uh, I was in elementary school. Which is and two why years the girls' bikes had no uh, line in the middle to well, keep it strong. I guess though it didn't make any sense at all because when we played on sports teams, we wore shorts. Oh. So, you know, why couldn't anyway? It well, was there was a not a logic to that it that Julie probably chose it to put first in the right. article. Um, I mean, besides being just a great uh, written piece, it's such a vivid depiction of a childhood memory um, of the feeling of being wronged. And I hope it doesn't seem like a great leap, but to me, um, this anecdote from 1965 still reflects the rhetoric uh, relating to sexual assault that teaches young women to... um, Teaches, yeah, like yeah. avoid getting right. raped right. instead of teaching young men mm-hmm. not to rape. Right. Mm-hmm. And I just, when I read that, you know, I had a very similar experience um, on the playground as well. But it just really hit me, the, the rhetoric itself. You know, the boys can see up your skirts instead of, you know, the boys shouldn't look up your skirts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's um, why I chose it. And I think it's a very accessible piece. Right. Jonah, I'd like you to share your piece with us, if you could. And the reason is is because you make reference to a very famous and powerful woman in it. And then we're going to have her speak next. Okay. (laughs) All right. So I did. I think this is an accurate observation about this volume. I find it um, intriguing, or I, I would like to understand more why it was that most of the women who wrote for it looked back into what I would call the remote past of their own lives. Mm-hmm. It, maybe it's easier to, like, uh, mm-hmm. encapsulate it. Um, you know, people could... I, I imagine that if everybody who contributed could have also written about something that happened yesterday or the right. day before. Right. 
Um, just to give you just to just a little anecdote here, I was at a farmer's market last Friday, and I was there with two women writers, and we had a couple of typewriters, and we had a sign that said, "We will write a poem for you if you come up and tell us the, you know, what you want us to write. We'll do that." So I was I was there. We'll write for friends. food at the farmer's market. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so. Um, I was looking around, and I noticed that there were lots of women who were talking to one another. So I mentioned to these two women friends of mine at their typewriters, you know, look, there's a lot of women standing around here and talking. And mm-hmm. there, was an, there was a woman who was right there who neither, none of us knew, and she said in a, like, in a very loud, shrill voice, Women do 85% of the work in the world, and men just sit around and drink beer and talk. So, I mean, and my friend said, boy, wow, she's really on a short fuse, isn't she? So, Or pointing out the reality of the world. (laughs) Well, that's her story. So... My my point was that women's conversations is a way of creating community. Right. I mean, you could you could interpret it in a lot of different ways. So, but I to me, it's it's said how angry this woman still was about what she perceived as a sort of injustice. Now, I don't know whether women actually do eighty five but she had the number eighty five don't trust anyone who introduces numbers into those kinds of statements. They pull them <laughs> out of the sky and they give the spurious probably male uh you know authenticity to it. Here's your piece, Jonah. It's so good. Not long ago, I began to tell friends feminism made a man out of me. I was being whimsical for sure and more than a tad sarcastic, but behind the whimsy and the sarcasm was a kernel of truth. As soon as I said it, I knew that I had unlocked a key part of my own personal history. The phrase feminism made a man out of me was purely mine, but there were certainly influences on my thinking. One of the most important of these influences was J.J. Wilson, my colleague for many years at Sonoma State University. I remember a lot of things that J.J. has said. Perhaps the most memorable comment, at least at this moment, is this. The real beneficiaries of feminism have been men. I know that from The moment I heard that comment, it resonated with me. Perhaps J.J. herself doesn't remember she made the remark. I certainly do. I am sure that one could demonstrate it and point out the flaws of the notion. Conventional wisdom would have it that the real beneficiaries of feminism have been women. Feminism, as I understand it, aims for the liberation of everyone and not just women. Yes, women are oppressed by patriarchal society, but so are men. Who is oppressed more is a moot point. Women might benefit from feminism in the short run more than men. They might be liberated from the fettering roles they play. They might be paid more for their labors. But everyone benefits from genuine feminism, much as everyone, from Scarlett O'Hara to Uncle Tom and Simon Legree, benefited from the abolition of slavery in the United States. 
Feminism has enabled me to reconnect with parts of myself that I gave away, surrendered when I played football, married for the first time in 1964, and when I worked as a college professor who taught male writers and not female writers such as Margaret Fuller, who wisely observed male and female are perpetually passing into one another. There is no holy masculine man, man, no purely feminine woman. To me, that's one of the fundamental ideas of feminism. To accept it means to reject the great dualism, as Fuller calls it, and at the same time to accept the feminine that's inherent in the masculine. Feminism means getting beyond cliches of the feminine and the masculine, too. It aided my escape from fettering roles. I didn't even know I was playing. The feminist me became more self-conscious than ever before. As a feminist, I began to choose to recreate myself and to interact with men and women in ways that felt less artificial, less forced, and less inhibiting. As Fuller noted, while any of us is base None can be seriously free and noble. That's as true today as when she first uttered it. Mm -hmm. You are listening to KRCB-FM's Word-by-Word Conversations with Writers show from North Bay Public Media. Today we are showcasing the newest book from the sitting room entitled This is What a Feminist Looks Like. This afternoon we are sharing ideas and reminiscences with several of the writers themselves, specifically Terry Errett, Julie Lee, Jonah Raskin, and J.J. Wilson. Now, do you think there's a, a West Coast view of it and an East Coast view and a Middle Coast view, if you will? Anyone it's definitely can shaped to by that. geography, yes. Yeah. Yeah. yes. So, I wonder what I think about that. Um, I read the New York Times perhaps too religiously, and so uh, they are having always having discussions about feminism. Right. And I think that what is happening is partly a change in the rhetoric. Uh, I think that people like using feminism as a kind of verb instead of always as a noun mm -hmm. uh, and say, I need feminism because, and then finishing that sentence. And when Jonah says this to me means, he always conditions what he says with the to me there. I heard a lot of the to me in our book that they were not one feminism, but 47 feminisms right. being described. Right. Right. And as Terry said, they're, be on, they're becoming, I mean, they're ongoing. Mm -hmm. So they change with any day. And uh, so I was amused to find that in some, like at Duke, they had... Uh, people were asked to complete the sentence. They wore signs that said, I need feminism because. And uh, this has also been happening in some high schools. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure the answers are quite different. I know, I think, Julie, you have a piece you want to read. Does it fit in now, Iris Stunkel's piece? Or? Not right now, but I uh -huh. sort of want to re-articulate what I um, said earlier about the JC's academic programs. It's mm -hmm. not so much a critique of the JC as an institution, but rather, you know, it's a side of, or it, it's a um, victim of patriarchal oppression, I think, you know, if... Um, the JC is the victim. Yeah. Which it, means it, the students are the victim. Exactly, because we're being... Um, sort of cheated out of a more wholesome education. Mm -hmm. 
And also, I just wanted to touch up on the West Coast versus... Oh, some S-U-M, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I just want to touch up on the West Coast, East Coast thing and um, relate back to the online thing, because what JJ was talking about, it's it's a totally... um, It's a social media movement now, and not to undermine um, in-person activism, but it's just the language that we speak in online and, you know, with visual cues like I need feminism because people holding those signs and I think it's a very powerful statement and it you know um, a really important part of third wave feminism is intersectionality which Mm -hmm. means you know we have to consider race and class and sexual orientation and how that relates to feminism and you know the online world doesn't have any borders and it can include all women and men of any gender um, identity, racial identity, and just include a broader um, movement of feminism. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the interesting things, of course, is the uh, expansion of what is a male and what is a female. You know, it used to be this simple dichotomy that you you were taught, certainly the boys are this way and the girls are this way. We most of us were taught that. But vanilla we, and chocolate, I think, is the yeah, analogy. vanilla and yeah. chocolate, mm-hmm. and uh, we now find that there's strawberry and tutti frutti and all kinds of other flavors. Yeah, you know, I well. I have noticed since I started teaching at uh, the junior college, which was 24 years ago, um, one of the um, one of the approaches that I take to teaching basic composition is to teach Jungian archetypes, mm-hmm. and then to see how well the students can recognize those archetypes in a variety of art and literary forms or in their dreams. Mm-hmm. And when I teach the um, anima animos um, distinctions for the pick, picking up on what Jonah said before about there being a um, feminine uh, qualities in any, in, in any human being and masculine qualities in any human being. But when I first started teaching it, the the young men in the class were extremely uncomfortable and even from time to time would accuse me of saying that they were homosexual, that they were hiding a homosexual quality in them. Uh, and the women, on the other hand, didn't seem to feel the least bit threatened right. by this. Well, over the years, I've noticed a greater degree of comfort with the concept and more students who don't identify as traditionally male or female, speaking up um, about that as well. And that's a real change, especially a change I have felt um, more prominent in the last, say, five years. Right. Well, the study, remember the Kinsey study that came out in the, the late 40s? The first one was the male. Surprise, surprise. And the next one, the female came out a few years later. But within that, he posited a very uh, interesting perspective of this continuum of sexuality and that, you know, yeah. the people, right. no one was at one end or the other. Very few people were. And no one was right in the middle, that everybody was a combination of ingredients. And it's taken a long time for the general population to pick that up and, and to feel comfortable, and, and to feel comfortable with talking it. Yeah, about they may it. be yeah. able to feel comfortable with it intellectually mm-hmm. and yet still have a very charged response to it emotionally right. or sure. an, a response that they're completely unconscious of. So, JJ, is there anybody in the book who says I'm 
a lesbian or I'm gay or I'm sort of bisexual or I'm other. Yes, but not the variety that we would get if we did it next year, I think. (laughs) I agree with you. This is coming over the social media and there is a huge debate at Mills, you know, as to whether to let students graduate at a, from a women's college if they change their, their gender. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, it took, uh, they've worked it out in the most extraordinarily uh, Byzantine and interesting way. And my friend Eileen Barrett says, here we go again. It's like the 70s. It's like we've got to, re, we've got to reinvent the pronoun. You know, they're it's not really. working. Right. The pronouns right. are just yeah. holding us up. So... This book is probably already old-fashioned, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think for me the startling thing was that the the discoveries about becoming a feminist happened so much in childhood and at home Mm -hmm. and uh, in the family. Well, that's part because of the prompt. When did you first become? Right. Right. Maybe I wish I'd said something else now in the prompt, but because I hear what Jonas says, sometimes it's easier to go back in time, and those those writings are are vivid always. There, but uh, I I had thought there would be. I had thought the family was this wonderful nurturing place where we were all valued for ourselves and our individuality. Well, it was for you, perhaps. And then we went out into the world, and the damn system taught us that we were, you know, not going to get paid equally. Guess what? The system reflects the family structure. That's why we have to change that first. Or we we can't ignore it. We can't take it for granted. Right. Because it, it... they reflect one another mm-hmm. like a mirror, and it's well, it, not it, always good. What happens in the family structure normalizes things that may um, be patently unfair and unjust, but when you move out of the family structure into a wider social environment, it can blind you to those injustices. Sometimes it takes recognizing it in the culture at large before you can even begin to take a look at how that played out in your um, family of origin. Right. So I, one of the things that, uh, that upsets me uh, right today, right this minute, has to do with rape. Um, there's an article in the latest uh, New Yorker about a British woman intellectual. Mary Butt Beard. Yeah, who mm-hmm. talks about being raped as a young woman mm-hmm. and says, eh, not a big deal, you know. And uh, at, most of the women I knew had it happened to them. Is that right? There's well, certainly she, a high percentage of people. Doesn't say in, that, but the colleges and university campuses say but that. But there's a uh, there's a scandal in England right now about the sort of uh, in the heart of England about the sort of rapes of young women that is that have been going on that have been covered up in the New York Times and. Uh, people not wanting the women, but some women reporting them and not not being investigated, and it's the corruption of the police, and so. Uh, you're, you're saying it happened in England, but it happens quite close to home too. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So I'm connecting, you know, this English woman intellectual who is saying not a big deal at the same time that we're hearing about <clears throat> dozens and dozens of rapes that are going on in small English towns. Don't you think, and I'm going to, I'm going to put this, give you a little background about me because you don't know anything about me probably. 
I worked for the YWCA of Los Angeles for nine years as their program consultant. I was the one who created new educational programs for the for the LAY and then eventually for the National Board of the YWCA. One of the programs that we did was one called Choices or Chances, and I had the opportunity to talk with perhaps a thousand young women who were in different, you know, junior high, senior high, early first two years of college. And the experiences that they told us about were what we put in this role-playing game. In other words, if three, more than 3% of the women had these experiences, we made sure that they were included as part of what would happen when you drew a chance or choice card, and rape was always a chance card. The, when I look at that now, and it was done in the early 80s, I should have been much more strident and loud and pointed out to the world at large what we had encumbered in a minor sociological study sort of way with the young women in Los Angeles County, all of whom were members of the Y, so that was a, you know, it wasn't a random group. But there was a time at that in the 80s when we thought that a mountain had been climbed, a milestone had been reached, that feminism, that equality, that rape, that the other um, tacits of the patriarchy were on the way out, that everything was going to get better over time. We were going to have the Equal Rights Amendment. Do you remember this feeling of euphoria? No. Yeah. <laughs> no I do not. Well, I do. In Los Angeles, certainly at that time mm. there was. And when the ERA did not get ratified, there was this whoomph of energy that just ex evaporated. Well, I, one, uh, I'm saying that I don't remember it because one of the things that I remember from the 80s uh, was I noticed that on TV and in the movies, a, a, a certain woman stereotype was, com was coming back stronger than ever before, the, the stereotype of the bitch. Mm -hmm. It was in movies. It was on TV shows. It was, uh, I mean, the, didn't they call it the backlash that that was taking yeah. place? Mm -hmm. uh, that Susan Faludi With the padded wrote, shoulders wrote and the about, very, you know, you know the business suits and, yeah, childless, that's right. Uh, yeah. business yeah. woman, mm -hmm. career woman. Yeah. And those shoes I mentioned just because <laughs> so, she wrote a terrible essay on shoes. I mean, terrifying essay on the I mean, there were people who were, try, who were trying to... Er eradicate the protests of the 60s before the, the 60s even turned into the 70s. Right. And people were trying to undo whatever feminism had achieved before the ink was dry on, uh, you know, on any of those kind of documents. Well, good. Let's call this book a front lash then. I think, <laughs> it's great. I think that's good. No, I think one of the things that I, that I seek and the advantage of this, and what I'm going to suggest to all of our listeners is they go out and get copies of this, which they will find where? Now, besides the um, the uh, sitting room, where else can they get it? Well, actually, the sitting room is the present source. I hadn't thought of putting it in a bookstore, but we are going to reprint a second edition, mm -hmm. and we uh, will have it available if you go to the sitting room website. It'll describe to you where you can get the copies of the book. And I agree. I'd love people not only to get it, but to write their own version of it. Mm -hmm. I think it's an ongoing mm -hmm. conversation that would be very fascinating to have. Right. And uh, so I hope that that's what will happen. I think you have a special 
story to read, though. Well, I want to do you first, JJ, okay. because uh, I've got a sort of a sequence that oh, I'm mind. so sorry. You're <laughs> in charge, you man. That's all right. Well, I just want you to leave it, room for It's Judy. just logical, and it builds <laughs> off of this okay. because <laughs> of your historical context that you're going to place with your piece. So can you share that with us? I wasn't even going to read it. I think No, it's... I know, but, but I'd like you to. Well, Did I was going to quote from it rather, ra- rather liberally, so you go ahead and read it. <laughs> okay. Uh, it, there were so many, of course, essays I wanted to write. This is the editor trying this. to be modest, but you have a no. history in the community that I think we need to honor. <laughs> well, this is not the way to do it. I'd rather read my <laughs> introduction. But... Would you like a banquet? <laughs> <laughs> Just a good swift drink Small right temple now. built out in the garden. Ah, yes, yeah. right, in the middle of somewhere. Uh, So, okay, could it have been when my grandmother corrected my early claim that I wished to be a nurse with the following stern injunction? If you do decide to go into medicine, it will be to become a doctor, not a nurse, says my grandmother, a Victorian, mind you, but a feminist. Or the more politically correct, uh, as I admire nurses still, to retell the tale of my conversion at my professional organization. Modern Language Association conference in the 1970s at an inspirational gathering presided over by such luminaries and mentors as Tilly Olson, Audrey Lord, and Adrian Rich. Important to me indeed, but the conversion was more to women's studies than to feminism per se. What does per se even mean? Let's pretend for the purpose of the transition that it means personal because the memory that keeps coming up when I plumb my not very deep depth is a deeply personal one and may not convey to others its impact on my psyche. It points to that part of feminism that means having sharp ears for bias or bullying or blindness in tone or substance, be it in families or in social systems. Here is the incident, for that is all it was. My mother was excited about buying a wonderful romantic house on the ocean when she heard it was selling for only $26,000, a bargain even in those days, the late 40s, when I was about 10 years old. But when she proposed this exciting project to her husband, specifying that she would use her own money, he, in kindly but condescending tones, declared, No, Jean, I don't advise it. The house is right there on the ocean and will be swept away in the first storm, along with all of your investment. That sensible voice of the patriarch put an end to her dream of owning the Villa Festiva, as it was and still is called. Oh, yes, it is still there. Oceans and storms have not discouraged it a bit, whilst I I hardly need specify both parents are swept away. Every time I see the lovely and loved house, that authoritative tone in Tom's voice echoes in my memory and reminds me always to question such definite views by the experts, those in power, whatever their gender. Guess what? They're not always right. Now, why did you want to have that? I wanted to do that because I want to ask a very specific question to Julie. Mm -hmm. Did you read this by yourself when you were some before you heard it today? Uh, yeah, I yes. read the entire read the book. Whole thing. <laughs> what was your reaction when you read it as a twenty-year-old? Interesting. I see your point. Um, to JJ's piece. To specifically? JJ's piece specifically, because we just heard that. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I put you on the spot. Yeah. Yeah. Say whatever you want. Right. Um, Did you jump up for joy? No, I I just I wasn't sure if my age had anything to do with her piece specifically. Um, But the family dynamic is, I think, something that most people can relate to. Um, I definitely can. The idealistic mother and you know my dad being pragmatic, laying down the law, that kind of thing. So it sounded very familiar, and it's disappointing it's not like oh jj we have this shared experience it's more like why why does this misery have to continue throughout all these generations good question let's say that again why does this mystery and misery misery Misery. yeah have to continue through all these generations is it familial is it societal is it some big patriarch somewhere that's laying down meeting in a room somewhere and saying this is what we're going to do for the next 10 years you know I think I think sometimes historically speaking that last scenario does play out. Uh-huh. And I you know you're like wonderful Court. you're wonderful <laughs> well, of, it's got some women there but you know uh, it's before. Uh, right. Yeah, but yeah. your your wonderful Victorian grandmother um came from a time when feminism went a whole lot further than um, history told us mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. And in the teens and 20s, which is when women got the vote, um, there, women were quite radicalized. And um, there, I think there was a very concerted effort to pull, to yank that back uh, during the rise of fascism. And so I do think sometimes history does put into power people who can say, this is our agenda and this isn't. And mm-hmm. feminism was definitely not. Uh, the the agenda of De Fuhrer and um, Il Duce and and others uh, who would have been profoundly they had some powerful by women it. in the Third Reich, but they were in specific roles as you know filmmaker or recorder or mistress oh, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I I respect very much what you say, and what my answer was a much milder one. I, Joan has been writing like fury. We want him to say what he, but. I think privilege is a very hard thing to give up, mm. uh, you know, nonviolently. Yeah. And uh, I think we've been trying to... Well, we're told for generations, and certainly this was true after World War II, the majority of the wealth is controlled or owned by women. So the question is, obviously, to the pragmatic one, if that's true, why aren't things different? Well, uh, I I don't know if we can be as specific as that. Even I don't uh, I don't think that owning the wealth is. Uh, I I remember Rita Mae Brown came to the county. Right. She had us all write quietly on a little piece of paper how much money we'd have available if we needed it for some big act. It was an all women's meeting. Maybe a thousand women there. The amount of money we had in our hands was terrific. But we would never have thought we wouldn't picture ourselves. You wouldn't buy the house on the ocean. <laughs> I, not unless it were for the homeless, if you know what I mean. I mean, I, I, I think we need to question whether the money is the indicator of power. Mm-hmm. It, it's more mm-hmm. your vision for the world that makes the difference. And we got that in the seventies. We got, we regained some of the vision that was mm-hmm. lost. Yes. 
And a lot of it was spillover from the 60s, even though everybody always talks about that's when women had to make coffee and all that. But we learned a lot there. I think another aspect of the problem is how powerful women are viewed. You know, um, it doesn't matter how much money this woman has if, you know, the media repeatedly depicts um, wealthy, powerful women as, as Jonah said, bitches. Um, girls are going to be feel discouraged from pursuing those kind of leadership positions. Absolutely. Very intelligent. So I would say that it, that it has to do, the crucial thing is, has to do with language, uh, how we talk about ourselves, how we talk about our world, how we talk about the family. Um, and how, how the it, media does that. The media, and we do it ourselves. I mean, I was listening here to, you know, uh, Terry, if I may say this, you know, I think you said that women got the vote, which that could be one way of putting it, but... They fought say, for it. Hmm? <laughs> they fought for it pretty hard. That's what I mean. They fought yeah. for it. They didn't just got yeah. the vote. Good point. Good point. And they, they didn't so. vote for it themselves. It was voted for by the men because the women didn't have the vote to vote. <laughs> well, they were marching and getting arrested and protesting and for, yeah. for right. a long, right. long time. And Some and, of my, you know, my grandmother was one of those. So. Great. So I think we need to be more conscious of how we're expressing ourselves and not repeating, using the sort of old mm-hmm. phrases and terms that, that keep us prisoners of gender and sex and, and the patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Good point. Julie, did you have a piece you wanted you to want read? To, you definitely <laughs> like her to read. You, you want to change the subject here. We're I'd like do her that to read a it, too. With, yeah. this Iris's is, uh, piece is Iris's, one of my favorites. Iris Dunkel's piece. So this is a... Is a is a quite different one in the mix. Yeah, it's a prose poem, and I it's a it's actually a personal favorite. And I was a little sad to have to cut it out of the final um, draft of the article, but you know, it needed it needed to be accessible. And a prose poem is really hard to um, just paraphrase and sort of like <laughs> just state the message. Because yeah, the it's whole hard to point, pick out the one. Two yeah, lines. because it's yeah. just yeah. the whole point is to um, feel the emotional movement. But anyway, I'll read it. Um, the Closet by Iris Jamal Dunkel. For Adrian Rich and Amy Lowell, the poets who made me the feminist I am today. Today, I am in the dark. Today, I am looking for the luminous tree to burn away the dark. Like a bare box sycamore, I'd written off for countless winters and springs. I'm waiting to see its leaves blaze crimson. I'm waiting for the heat and power to enter me. The panels that contain me are cedar and pungent. There is no light save that from a high window in the far corner that is fogged by dust. It's open, though, so that the wind that whispers in carries the breath of lilies and the idea of the garden below. In here, we speak in shadows. Even in this dim light, my sisters loom large by throwing their images upon the dark walls. I do my best to decipher boundaries, barring dark from dark to find sense, but am always still distracted by the other voices that trickle in from beneath the locked closet door. Some days I think the darkness will swallow me, that I'll drown in its ink, and others, the light of early dawn burns the walls awake enough to illuminate the words that my sisters have scrawled up and down the walls, so that I believe in them, so that I believe in the garden below. One day, the door of the closet will open and what is contained within it will pour out. Black, velvet, dark, 
or amethyst stain of dawn. One day, we will live like trees, blazing out into the open air. One day, our words will wash over their storied houses and reach the garden below. Very nice. Thank you. So this is a good time to do a summary. Let's use that poem as our prompt, if you will. Um, an inner space, a real space. Um, what is this closet she writes about? Um, I especially enjoy this poem because it's filled with literary illusions. And the one that I personally just reacted to is um, Charlotte Perkin Gilman's The Yellow Wallpaper, a very important early feminist short story about how hysteria, this women's disorder, was treated in the Victorian age um, with the rest cure, which is essentially being confined uh, to lying in bed all day. And I, it just really, that was what I reacted to. But uh, when I talked to Iris yesterday, she told me, you know, um, the reader has the authority to sort of read into those things, but she also intended to add uh, allusions to Adrian Rich and Anne Lowell's Amy Lowell's work. Right, right. This is a perfect segue to have J.J. share with us what the topic of next year's Sitting Room Anthology will be, which is to be edited by Lucy Friesen. What Lucy uh, wanted us to do was to look and find a a woman writer whom we admired for whatever reasons we were fans of, wanted to be advocates for, Mm -hmm. and that we would write an essay, one-page essay, on why everybody ought to read this writer more. We thought then, it, once it's published, that it would be a marvelous sort of reading guide for book groups. Sure. That we would read And you're going to have through. one of your new bookcases filled with the, the women's works, right? Wouldn't that be delicious? <laughs> yes. Are you giving us a new bookshelf? No, I thought I just saw one online. <laughs> there. I have some if you'd like some, but uh, we, we can talk about that. You have been listening to KRCB-FM's Word-by-Word Conversations with Writers show from North Bay Public Media. Today we peeked between the covers of the newest book from The Sitting Room, entitled This is What a Feminist Looks Like. During the show, we shared ideas and reminiscences with several of the writers themselves, including Terry Errett, Julie Lee, Jonah Raskin, and J.J. Wilson. The engineer for today's show is Jesse Fancushin. Staff assistance is provided by Wendy Nicholson and Sean Knight. Our theme music is by Bill Conti, and I am your host, Gil Manser. We want to invite you to join us for our next word-by-word broadcast right here at North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM, from 4 to 5 on Sunday afternoon, October 5th. We will be celebrating Halloween a tad bit early with the reprise of a word-by-word conversation with novelist Molly Dwyer and her astounding book, Requiem, for the author of Frankenstein. The spooky story travels from the present to the past and recounts the almost unbelievable life of Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, who wrote her novel Frankenstein, a modern Prometheus, when she was only 19 years old. Until then, we hope those of you who are back in school will discover the amazing possibilities in your classroom and, I might add, in your library.